And uh, we've noted the fact that uh, God, in his goodness to Israel in the reign of Solomon, fulfilled so many of the promises he had made. God keeps his covenant promises. He kept his promises to David that he would raise up a son that would sit on his throne, that would build the temple. And uh, Solomon uh, built a glorious temple. And God uh, blessed Solomon with wisdom and wealth. And so we see that the Bible records, gives us uh, the knowledge of Christ through all of Scripture, including all the way back to Genesis, all the way to the end of, of uh, Revelation. And that we come to know Christ more richly as we study all of God's dealings and all of his goodness, his covenant faithfulness to his people throughout the years in which he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt, led them through the wilderness, brought them into the promised land, and uh, through many years of unfaithfulness, uh, finally brought uh, everything to its culmination under... Solomon's reign, David's son, and all of the, the promises of uh, a king who would establish a kingdom and who would build the temple are fulfilled in Solomon. But we see also that uh, God uh, intends to teach us about Jesus Christ in that. It is Jesus Christ who is the true uh, king. Solomon proves to be one who is unreliable in terms of his own relationship with the Lord. So uh, tonight we want to look at uh, chapter 11, verses, uh, we're going to look uh, at verses 9 through 13, and then skip down to uh, verses 26 through 43. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods, but he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice, and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you, and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father I will... Not do it in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of David, my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen." And now we're going to skip down to verse 23. I'm sorry, 26. <clears throat> Jeroboam, the son of Nabeb, at an Ephraimite of Zeradah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zeruah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. 
And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able. And when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah, the Shilonite, found him on the road. Now Ahijah had dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. When Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him and tore it into twelve pieces, and he said to Jeroboam, Take for yourself ten pieces, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Behold, I'm about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and will give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel. Because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites. They have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight, and keeping my statutes and my rules, as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole of the kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life, for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose, who kept my commandments and my statutes. But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand and will give it to you, give to you, give it to you ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. And you, you will listen to all that I command, and if you will listen to all that I command you, and will walk in my ways, and do what is right in my eyes, by keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I will be with you, and I will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled into Egypt to Shishak, the king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. Now the rest of the acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel was forty years. Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David his father. And Rehoboam his son reigned in his place. So ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. We give thanks to you, O Lord our God, that you have uh, revealed the Lord Jesus Christ to us in Scripture. We ask, Lord, as we consider your dealings with your people Israel, 
especially in the reign of Solomon, and the judgment you brought upon, uh, upon Israel during the end of his reign, that we will consider uh, the, uh, the waywardness of our own human hearts and that we would consider that covenant that holds us secure and that we would put our faith and our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the true King and Savior of his people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we saw that uh, Solomon's wives turned his heart away from wholehearted devotion to the Lord. Uh, he allowed his love for the Lord to grow cold. And the result was that he tolerated things in his kingdom done by his foreign wives uh, that he should not have tolerated. He married uh, against the express command of God. He married uh, idolatrous wives. And he tolerated their idolatrous worship. And uh, Solomon disobeyed the Lord. This tendency that we all have uh, to have hearts that uh, grow cold in their love to the Lord is something that uh, Solomon also shared. The hymn writer expresses it uh, this way, uh, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Uh, the Christian life is a life in which we struggle with even our own hearts. As much as the Lord has done a great work of grace in us and drawn us to uh, believe and to trust in Christ, we also we find that we are prone to uh, allow the love that we should have for Christ to grow cold at times. In the case of Solomon, we see that uh, the Lord became angry with him because of his disobedience to his commandments, and he raised up adversaries. And uh, last week, we looked at two of those, Hadad the Edomite and Rezon, who, was, uh, who had become king, eventually became king in Damascus to the north, so the Edomites to the south, Damascus to the north. Uh, this week we're going to be introduced to a third adversary uh, to uh, Solomon, whose name is Jeroboam. And uh, I want to just look at this uh, section of scripture under three uh, major headings. One is, in verses 26 through 28, uh, we see uh, Jeroboam as a man is introduced to us in verses 26 through 28. And then, uh, in Jer secondly, we see Jeroboam's uh, encounter with the prophet in verses 29 through 39. We also read of Solomon's response to this encounter. He sought to kill Jeroboam. Uh, we also read of Solomon's death at the end of the chapter, verse 43. So uh, first we'll look at the introduction to, of Jeroboam, and secondly, uh, his encounter with the prophet, and then thirdly, try to draw some lessons from it. Major point, I think, of this whole uh, section that we're looking at tonight is this. 
Solomon's sins bring judgment upon Israel. God's, Solomon's sins bring judgment upon Israel. But we also see that the Lord remains true to his covenant. Solomon's sins bring judgment to Israel, but the Lord remains true to his covenant. So also we want to see that for our very own selves as well. Uh, though we may sin, and though our hearts may grow cold, and the Lord may discipline us, God's covenant love is anchored in eternity and never changes. I really want us to see God's faithfulness to Israel. And I want you to know God's faithfulness to you in Jesus Christ. So we want to first look at the man Jeroboam in verses 26 through 28. We're told that Jeroboam is the son of Nebat uh, and Ephraimite. Now you remember that Ephraim was the uh, younger son of Joseph, uh, Ephraim's brother being uh, Manasseh. And uh, Ephraim uh, is, becomes a, a name that is attributed to the northern ten tribes that uh, Jeroboam will break off because uh, throughout the prophets you will read uh, of references to the northern tribes as God will address them as Ephraim. And, the, and that is because Ephraim is the, becomes the, sort of the center of the capital of the northern uh, tribes. So he is an Ephraimite. He's a servant of Solomon. And his mother's name is Zeruah, a widow. And uh, Jeroboam lifted up his hand against the king. Um, and th uh, this was uh, the reason, we're told, uh, we're told the reason that he lifted up his hand against the king is that he was the main uh, leader in the work of building uh, Milo. Uh, in verse 27, um, the king Solomon built Milo and closed up the breach of the city of David his father. So uh, Milo is thought to be um, that area between Zion, or the city of David to the south, and then the northern uh, area um, just, just north of uh, the city of David is, is the uh, Mount Moriah, where the temple was built. And between them was a valley. And it is thought that Milo is that, that valley, and that Solomon's purpose was to build up the valley to make access between Zion, or the city of David, and the temple uh, more uh, accessible. So in the building of that, in the building of that, uh, he used the abilities of one young man by the name of Jeroboam, who showed himself to be industrious and to be a leader. Uh, and he put him in charge over the forced labor of the house of Joseph, the Ephraimites. And so at that time, um, uh, Jeroboam uh, has shown that he has abilities. Now, uh, there's mention of the forced labor, the forced labor. And the word that is used there designates um, the labor force from the northern tribes of uh, Israel that were kept in Jerusalem 
for the completion of the temple complex work. And so uh, there, was, there was a large contingent of laborers who were Israelites. But the word that is used is different from that that is used to refer to those uh, Canaanites or foreigners within Israel that were made slaves. So there's forced labor and there's slave labor. And uh, there's a distinction between those two drawn in the text. Jeroboam is placed over the, the labor. Now, those conditions were probably hard. And uh, it's thought that there was a sense of, of uh, resentment and uh, 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 dissatisfaction among those workers and that Jeroboam was very well attuned to the, to the harshness of the work that they were called to do. And so uh, Jeroboam, in being made a leader of these uh, laborers, uh, becomes uh, sort of the instrument that God ends up using to bring discipline and judgment upon uh, Israel. So this uh, Israelite labor is not the same labor as those that were put into slavery uh, who were Canaanites or foreigners who lived in Israel. I just wanted to make sure that that, that distinction uh, is, is there. And so the second thing we see, uh, in, after being introduced to Jeroboam the man, we see his encounter with the prophet. We see that in verse, uh, verse 29 uh, and following. And at that time, we're told that Jeroboam is on his way out of Jerusalem, and the prophet Ahijah, He's from Shiloh, and uh, he's walking with Ahijah, Jeroboam is. They're walking out of the city, and uh, Ahijah is wearing a new garment. And uh, suddenly, Ahijah takes that garment off, and he rips it into uh, pieces. He tore it into 12 pieces. And he, um, he, he says to Jeroboam, after tearing it into pieces... And as a, as a way, I, the only way I can envision this is that he put them on the ground and uh, he says to him that um, this, as repre- this garment represents Israel. And uh, he says, take for yourself ten of the pieces, says the Lord, the God of Israel. So God is speaking through the prophet to Jeroboam. This is God's word to him. And this is the announcement of the judgment that God is going to bring upon Israel. I'm about to tear. Notice the word tear. There's a a sense of violence that comes with that. I'm going to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon. And I will give you ten tribes, you Jeroboam. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of of Jerusalem, the city that I've chosen out of all of the tribes of Israel. Now, you might say, well, um, let's see, 10 and 1. Um, so what happened there to the 12 tribes? Well, what, uh, uh, what is happening here is that uh, Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, is so close to Jerusalem geographically that it's considered to be a part of Jerusalem, and it's just subsumed here under 
Judah. Uh, so um, it, it, the, the math doesn't exactly add up, but that's, that's the reason for that. And so he shall have one tribe for the sake of my servant David. He's going to remain. Uh, the kingdom of Judah will remain. Uh, and then he says the reason for this in verse 33, because they have forsaken me and worshipped, and then the, the mention of these idols. Uh, notice that, um, that the word they is used. Not just, uh, it's not singular, it's plural. They have forsaken me. That is the God of Israel. They have forsaken me and they've worshipped uh, Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of Moab, Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. And so this is the reason for the judgment that is being given, that Solomon, in his idolatry, had led the people into idolatry as well. Idolatry, uh, the worship of false gods, is running uh, rampant through uh, Israel. And uh, so uh, he says that, uh, nevertheless, he says, there is grace that is going to be shown. Um, and uh, he says that that, uh, that judgment is moderated in verse uh, 34. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I will make him ruler all the days of his life uh, for the sake of David, my servant. So notice that language. He says, for, on the one hand, that uh, the whole kingdom isn't going to be taken. Uh, David and, is, and uh, Solomon and the sons of David will continue to rule from Judah. So not the whole kingdom. And as well, uh, God is granting Solomon the rule of Judah all the days of his life. He's not going to do it in his lifetime. So in that sense, God is showing mercy to S Solomon. And uh, he does this for the sake of David, my servant. I want you to notice that language. For the sake of David, my servant. Why? Because God had made promises to David. And those promises we're going to look at in just a minute. But he says, um, all of this, he says, uh, yet uh, to he, God, God continues to describe um, this in verse 36, yet to his son I will give one tribe that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Israel. God is preserving his uh, the, 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 the rule of David and his sons will continue to rule from Judah, the city that I have chosen, Jerusalem, the city that I have chosen to put my name. And I will take you, and you shall reign over all your soul desires. Speaking to Jeroboam, he says, You ha shall reign over all that your soul's, soul desires, that is, uh, over Israel, to the north, the ten tribes. And uh, he says, if, if you will listen, and notice the, the generosity of God to Jeroboam. If you will listen all that, to all that I command you, and will walk in all my ways, and do what is right in my eyes, my, by keeping my statutes and my commandment as David my servant 
uh, did. Now, notice he, he, he says, as David did. And if you will do all of this, I will be with you and I will build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. So the promise then to Jeroboam is that a promise of blessing of God upon him if he will walk in obedience. But notice verse 39, I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. So somehow, this prophecy of Ahijah to Solomon reached the ears of Solomon. And when Solomon found out about this, he sought to uh, kill Jeroboam. And you can, uh, you, you, you think of associations, who else tried to kill uh, someone who a prophet had told would be king? Uh, uh, Saul did that with David, and here, uh, uh, Solomon is acting like Saul and trying to kill someone whom God has said would reign over the ten tribes. So you notice that Solomon at this point is not acting uh, uh, with humility. He's not acting uh, penitently. He's seeking to kill Jeroboam. Jeroboam uh, then arises, flees to, to Egypt and uh, under the protection of the king of Egypt until the death of Solomon. And then in the final verses of the chapter, verse 43, we read that Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam reigned in his place. And so uh, this whole passage uh, teaches us a number of things. And I'd um, just like to quickly uh, mention a couple. One is... Notice how through the raising up of these adversaries uh, by God, God is uh, in the one who is ordering and controlling the events uh, surrounding these individuals. He's ordering their very lives, their, their, uh, the time when they lived, the time that they were born, the, the things that they would uh, do. Uh, uh, God is the one who is sovereignly in control of the history that is unfolding here. Ahijah announces beforehand what that history is going to be. And uh, as we read in the rest of the book of Kings, uh, as this history unfolds, the division between the northern ten tribes and the southern tribe of Judah and Benjamin you have this unfolding, and, and God's word then directs history. And that's what I want us to notice from this, that God is the one who is sovereignly at work, uh, working these things out according to his plan. God, in his providence, is working out his sovereign will in the history of his people. And he's working out his will not only in the history of Israel in ancient times long ago, but he continues to do that today. And it's something for us to remember that God is sovereignly in control of our lives and our history, the time of our birth, the time when we live, the opportunities that we have, the times that we do well, the times that we don't do well. All of these things are in God's plan. So this, uh, this uh, teaches us 
that uh, God uses instruments, but that God is the one who is in charge of history. Uh, we live in times when uh, we would like history, uh, we would like uh, politics and uh, elections, and we would like uh, our own culture to go in a very different direction than what we see it going, but God sovereignly has his purpose in all the affairs of men. And the second thing is that I'd like for us to notice from this passage is that uh, God, in his generosity, promises Jeroboam that if he will obey him, he will bless him, even in this uh, splitting off of the northern kingdom. And so Jeroboam then has an obligation to obey the Lord. And uh, he will show that he doesn't care about that obligation, and he is going to be uh, very disobedient to the Lord. And yet, God will hold Jeroboam accountable even for those things that he himself rejects or does not acknowledge. So the second thing I'd like for us to notice from this is that the obligation of obedience to God in his covenant remains even when we don't necessarily acknowledge it ourselves. The ten northern tribes of Israel will still be held to account for their disobedience to the covenant. The same is true for you and I. All men and women are held accountable to God for the judgment uh, uh, on the day of judgment to the standard that he has given to us even in our very creation in his image. He has instilled within us his, the works of the law. He has instilled within us a knowledge of himself. And all men, whether they acknowledge that or not, will be held accountable on the day that Christ returns. In rebellion, they may uh, deny that obligation, but that denial does not remove the obligation. And that's the thing that we notice. The third thing I'd like for us to notice here in this text, and I think this is really the primary message I think I'd like to underline, is that when God disciplines Solomon, he does it through these instruments, these adversaries. But even in his judgments upon his people, he shows grace and mercy. He does not punish Israel as they deserve. He continues to hold to the promises that he made to David. And you can see that in the uh, way in which he says to Solomon, he says uh, through the prophet to, Jer to uh, Jeroboam that uh, he's not going to take the whole kingdom out of uh, Solomon's hands or David's hands. He will not take it away even during his lifetime. But David will have a lamp. There will be a light shining in Jerusalem. What is that light? That light is God's covenant of grace. That covenant that God had established with Israel and had established with David that he would always have a son on the throne in Jerusalem. 
the affliction of David's line that this break in Israel uh, caused, the affliction that is referred to in verse 39. I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. The royal line is not punished with everlasting uh, punishment, but he is, he is afflicted for a confined or a certain period of time. It will not be forever. And as we think about that, we ask the question, why? Why is God showing such mercy? It is because of that covenant, that, that promise that God made to David that is based upon the promise that he made even to his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and following, we read of the promise that God made to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom and he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I put away from before you. Your house, this is the Lord's word to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So the nature of the discipline that this break in Israel's unity brings to David's line is meant by God to be the discipline of a father to a son. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. It is the relationship between a God who loves David and loves his sons and will discipline them but not punish them with everlasting punishment. The nature of discipline, then, is corrective. It is directed by love. It is undergirding the relationship that you have with God, that that covenant that God has made is made with his Son from all eternity. And that covenant can never change. It is the bedrock of your confidence before God. And this relationship between the believer and God is, is what I think is so noticeable in this passage. It is, it is the rock foundation of our lives. Amid all of the tragic consequences of sin in our own personal relationships, in our families, in our churches, Amid all of the pain and the heartache that sometimes can drive us to the very edge of despair, we must remember that the Lord's mercy never fails. He has not forgotten to show mercy 
even when he lovingly disciplines us. That's what we see in his treatment of Solomon and of his people Israel, and we know that it is true for us as well. Your world may seem to have crumbled around you, but out from under the rubble, God is at work using your pain to make you the man or the woman that he intends you to be. He is teaching you as only God has the power to teach. He will turn your sorrows into joy, a joy that is no longer dependent upon circumstances or what people may say or do, but a joy that trusts in the faithful Savior who came into our world, experienced the ultimate in judgment that we might know the truth and the certainty of these words. I will afflict, but not forever. Christ bore the curse of Israel. We're going to see all of, all of, the, all of the punishments and all of the afflictions and the curse that the people of Israel brought upon themselves when Jesus Christ came, he carried our griefs, he bore our sorrows, he has taken our curse, he has risen from the dead, and he sits as king in glory on the promise of his life, his death, his resurrection. On that promise, we may stake our very lives. Homes may crumble. Churches may go through difficulty. Earthly kingdoms will totter. But Christ has assured us that where he is, we will soon be with him in glory. Your house and your kingdom, God said to David, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne I will establish forever. So what are you going through? What is it that, what affliction are you suffering? I want to urge you and plead with you tonight to realize that God acts many times in our lives in the way of discipline, but he does it as a heavenly father. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that he is the one who is the foundation it's not, your, it, it's not your perfect obedience, but it is his perfect obedience that you can rest upon. Trust in him that God, for the sake of his own glory and for the sake of his covenant, will never let you go. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we ask that you would help us to remember this uh, promise that you made to David because it is uh, the expression of the promise that you made to your son that uh, he would be king over his people, that he would be the one who would deliver us from our sins. And we ask, our Father, that even tonight that we might look to Christ that we might receive from him that grace to help us in our time of need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
as we come to the Lord's table, I want to invite you to turn uh, in your hymnals to hymn number 265. 265, we'll sing the first two stands. death in which he bore our sins and paid the penalty that we deserve, making it possible for us to experience the riches of the knowledge of the grace of God, the forgiveness of our sins, a sense of being sons and daughters, that God is our heavenly Father, that he loves us, and he has declared to us in Christ those who trust 